0: Uh, everybody excited about the, uh, we got a solar eclipse tomorrow. We're not going to get to see the totality, right? We just get to see a partial solar eclipse. I thought about having the worship team, um, do total eclipse in my heart, but I just thought that'd be a little cliche. Um, nobody's excited about it. You know that it's like the end of the world tomorrow, Right? I was gonna preach on it because every all all these Facebook posts are like the end of the world. My mother in law sent me an email about the end of the world's coming because of the total eclipse, and and then I started researching it. Did you know that there's a, a solar eclipse, at, total solar eclipse, every eighteen months somewhere in our planet? Did you know that? But it's a big deal, you know. Whatever. Anyways, you can only see it from like land at certain amount of times, but. Anyways, all that, I decided uh, because it happens every 18 months, I'm not going to preach on it. And instead, I'll stay in the series that we started last week. And uh, last week, we started this series based upon uh, a book called The Circle Maker. And it's uh, written by Mark Batterson. And it's kind of the theme for our 21 days of prayer uh, that we started last week. We're in day number eight uh, today. No, we're in day number seven today. Uh, tomorrow's day number eight. And uh, it was, as I read the book, it really, really challenged me. And I, I hope that it will challenge you as well that uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person that uh, often minimizes uh, what God can do uh, through the power of prayer. And, and I hope that this for all of us will challenge us to just kind of step out in a little bit more faith uh, and believe for God to do uh, the miraculous in our life. Uh, last week we talked about a guy named Honey. If you missed it last week, you can uh, go back, watch it online, or uh, you can uh, read the book if you want. It uh, talks about the story in there. But Honey was a guy, he's from Jewish history, he was in the Jewish history books, and uh, they were in the midst of a drought. He draws a circle in the sand with his staff. And, uh, and he's standing in the middle of the circle and he makes this commitment to pray to God for rain, until, and, and he's going to stand in that circle until it happens. So Honey kind of uh, backs himself into a circle, not a corner, but into a circle, if you will, believing God for the miraculous. And before, a, before there was ever a raindrop that fell, you had to believe that Honey probably felt a little bit foolish, right? I mean, the, the, the reality is is, uh, when you're standing inside of a circle and you're demanding rain, it's kind of a risky proposition. And anytime we put ourselves out there and we begin to contend for the miraculous, we can at times seem a bit foolish. Uh, But that's really what faith is, isn't it? I mean, faith is uh, really about stepping out and believing for something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Drawing prayer circles often looks like an exercise in foolishness. In fact, faith is the willingness to look foolish. Noah looked foolish when he's building an ark this massive boat in the middle of the desert, The Israelite army looks a little foolish as they're marching around a walled city blowing their trumpets. Uh, A shepherd boy named David looked a little foolish charging a behemoth of a man with only a slingshot in his hand. The wise men looked foolish as they're following a star in the sky. Peter looked a little foolish as he steps out of the boat into a raging sea. And Jesus looked a little foolish with the crown of thorns. But the results speak for themselves. Noah was saved from the flood. The walls, as we talked about last week, came tumbling down. David defeats Goliath. The wise men discover the Messiah. Peter walks on water. And Jesus is crowned the king of kings. But in the midst of all of that faith, there is a sense that it, might feel a little foolish. Moses knows a little about being foolish. In fact, he probably felt a little foolish going before Pharaoh and demanding that Pharaoh let all of the slaves go, all of the Israelites go. He had to feel a little bit foolish standing before the Red Sea, the ocean, and holding up a staff and expecting that somehow that Red Sea is going to part and we're going to be able to walk across it. In those moments leading up to that, you have to feel, it's like everybody, all these people are following, watching Moses. He's standing there with his staffs, telling, commanding God to part the seas. They're probably going, has Moses lost it? He's been out in the sun just a little bit too long. Like, that's too big. There's no way possible that that could happen. In order to experience a miracle, we have to take risk. And one of the most difficult types of risk to take is risking our reputation. Honi already had a reputation as a rainmaker, but he was willing to risk his reputation by praying for rain one more time. Honi took a risk. The greatest chapters in history always begin with a risk. And the same true is with the chapters of our life. If we're unwilling to risk our reputation, we'll never build a boat like Noah. We'll never step out of the boat like Peter. We have to be willing to appear just a little bit foolish. We'll never have the opportunity to win one of our neighbors into a relationship with Jesus to lead them towards Christ. Circle makers are risk takers. And Moses had learned this lesson well. If you don't take the risk, you forfeit the miracle. So let's take a look at Numbers chapter 11. We're going to look at a story that we find in in the Old Testament about Moses. After 400 years of slavery, here's the context of it. 400 years of slavery. The Israelites were in Egypt. They were slaves. They were held captive for 400 years, generations, and God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. And one of the things we talk about around here is that uh, for, in the midst of this process of, of for 400 years them being enslaved, and then now all of a sudden they are a free people, it's a lot harder to pull the Egypt out of the people than it is to pull them out of Egypt. And what I mean by that is we're, it's much like our own relationship with Christ, that, that when we experience, as Jeremy talked about, a new life in Christ, it, all of a sudden it's like, okay, we've received this freedom that we haven't had in the past. We are now free from the bondage and the brokenness and the slavery of our past. But now we have to learn what it is to live in that freedom, and it's the same with the Israelites. They had to learn again and again what it is to live as free people. And, and if you know any of the story of the Egyptians, they were kind of a bunch of uh, crybabies. I mean, they whined all the time, right? And, and, and despite the memories of slavery and, and all of this, and even the miraculous that takes place, right? The, despite all the memories of the, them being enslaved and the miracle of their deliverance and all of that, The Israelites want to go back to Egypt. And this is what they say in in Numbers chapter 11. The people of Israel began to complain. Oh, for some meat. Right? I mean, they sound a little Texan, honestly. Like, just give me some meat and I'll be happy. We remember, they go on to say, we remember all the fish we ate. Okay, so maybe not Texan because they were eating fish. Probably more like West Coasters, right? Or something along those lines. We used to eat these fish for free. We were enslaved, but we at least had fish. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks. So now they're vegetarian. So definitely not Texan. Uh, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic and they, uh, that they wanted. We had all of those things. But now our appetites are gone. And day after day, we have nothing to eat but this manna. This manna being this bread from heaven that would appear every morning in the dew. And they just got sick and tired of eating the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And they just like, give me some meat. The Israelites were complaining again. And I know it doesn't come as a shock, but instead of manna, they wanted meat to eat. And I understand that. I mean, if you've ever, uh, uh, Pastor Jeremy went, uh, when we were doing the 21 days of prayer and fasting, he went on the Daniel fast, which is like all vegetables and fruit, right? And he said it was was worse than not eating anything, (laughs) is what he said. He's just like, it's horrible. And when you're eating the same thing, like in small doses, it's good. With variety, it's good. But when it's the same thing and it's all you have, I can understand it. Right? I th- I'm under the firm belief that if you've never eaten it at all, an all-you-can-eat Brazilian uh, steakhouse, you're probably not ready to die yet. Like you, you still have some living to do in your life. But if you want to talk about selective memory, the Israelites longingly remember the free fish they ate in Egypt, and they forget the fact that the food was free because they weren't. The Israelites were, weren't just slaves, they had been the victims of genocide, yet they missed meat on the menu. And isn't it just a little ironic that the, that the Israelites were complaining about one miracle and asking for another miracle? Their capacity for complaining was really pretty amazing. And we laugh at the Israelites for grumbling about the meal of manna, grumbling about this miraculous bread from heaven that comes down to their doorsteps. But don't we do the same thing? Aren't we, aren't we so guilty of the, of the exact same thing? Because, and this is in your notes, that there are miracles all around us all of the time. Yet it's so easy for for us to find something to complain about in the midst of those miracles. I mean, take, for instance, just the simple act of reading. Right When you are reading something, it involves millions of impulses firing across billions of synapses in your brain. While you're reading, your heart goes about its business, circulating five quarts of blood through 100,000 miles of veins and arteries and capillaries. And it's amazing that you can even concentrate, given the fact that you're on a planet planet that's traveling 67,000 miles per hour through space while spinning on its axis at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. But we take those manna miracles, the miracles that happen day in and day out, for granted, don't we? The other part of this is God's math doesn't really add up in this. Despite their constant complaining, God patiently responds to this little food tantrum that they're having with one of the most unfathomable promises ever made in Scripture. He doesn't just promise, okay, fine, you guys are sick of the bread. I'll, I'll give you some meat for today. He doesn't just promise a one-course meal. God promises meat for a month, and Moses can't even believe it. Listen to what Moses said. He says, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give you meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have even enough? Uh, would they have." E- enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Moses is doing the math in his mind and it doesn't add up, not even close. He's trying to think of any conceivable way that God could possibly fulfill this promise and he can't even think of a a scenario in which that would happen. He doesn't see how God could fulfill an impossible promise for a day, let alone for a whole month. Have you ever been in that place in your life where it seems impossible? It doesn't add up. There's something about the scenario that just, it just doesn't add up, and yet you know it's something that God has for your life. Maybe it's something along the lines of uh, adoption. You're looking at adopting a child and it it just none of the numbers add up the finances the timing all of that and yet there's something in the midst of that that seems impossible and yet it just you're not sure how it's going to happen or taking a job that pays less like that doesn't even make any sense and and that's that's the nature of god it, oftentimes things just don't add up they don't make sense well when Kelly and I were uh, in Spokane, we in Spokane, Washington, we were on staff at a church there for seven years. I shared this a little bit and periodically, but we get a phone call uh, that's uh, asking us to come and consider moving to Texas to take on a church here, and uh, it didn't make any sense. Honestly, we had only been to Texas once in our life. My parents used to live here in 2000 and so we came and visited. It was night it was like the beginning of May and it was only like 112 degrees outside. So that didn't make a whole lot of sense, but we get this phone call and our ministry, our family, everything that we knew was on the West Coast and it didn't make any sense if there was something of God moving and working that, that seem to be the right thing. And I just wonder how many of us have experienced some of these things that just don't make sense, and yet God's moving. This predicament that Moses finds himself in reminds me uh, of another food miracle that takes place. About 1,500 years later, uh, a crowd of 5,000 people are gathered around. Jesus is teaching them, and he doesn't want them to leave hungry but there's no place to eat. And so they're kind of looking around, wondering, what are we going to do? And a nameless boy comes up with five loaves in his brown bag lunch. And I don't know if they had a brown bag back then, but a satchel, sack, whatever the case, on I don't know. But he has five loaves of bread and two fish and he brings it to Jesus. And Andrew, the disciple Andrew, kind of verbalizes what all the rest of the disciples are thinking. Like, what are we going to do with this? How far will these go with so many people? And like Moses, Andrew starts doing the math in his head, and it doesn't add up. In, if you look at it in the terms of addition, 5 plus 2 equals 7. Even I know that because I took math for ministers, and which is a real class in Bible college, if you didn't know. They think that we're really dumb. We're like... This is math for ministers. The rest of the world knows how to do this math. This is what you need to know. So (laughs) you take math for ministers, and and I know that 5 plus 2 equals 7. But if you bring God into the equation, 5 plus 2 doesn't equal 7. When you give what you have to God, he multiplies it. So now 5 plus 2 equals 5,000 and not only does god multiply the meal that uh, so that it feeds the 5000 they actually end up with 12 basketfuls afterwards and so really 5 plus 2 equals 7 or 5 plus 2 equals 5000 with a remainder of 12 like i said i took math for ministers so <laughs> you're welcome see if you put what little you have in your hand, into the hand of God, it doesn't just add up. God will make it multiply. I'll tell you what doesn't add up, tithing. That doesn't make any sense. And if, you, if you're familiar with the biblical principle of tithing, it's the, it's the giving of your first. Like, so in antiquity, what they would do is they would bring their livelihood, their sheep or their goat or whatever, they put it on an altar as a sacrifice of praise to God. And we don't do that unless we're actually barbecuing things. But here we bring our livelihood, our resources, our finances, and we give it to the Lord. We give of our first. And as a church, we believe in the principle of of the 10% of tithing on the 10% and and I don't ever really preach on it all that much, but I was thinking about it in this context in God's math and God's economy. And this is something that doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, we'll, we'll have people come at times and they've amassed debt and uh, and we direct them towards financial peace university or uh, some of our other finance uh, life groups, but oftentimes they'll come and our first counsel to them will be well are you tithing and they're like oh no you didn't hear me like I don't have any money like I I I owe and I've got debt and all this and our response is yeah but like that's the first step toward like giving is the first step towards getting getting out of debt and you just see this blank stare on their face and they're like I don't know what you're talking about and and that's God's economy it doesn't make sense and yet it's true. I want to read to you an email I got a a little while back from a a couple in our church. I'm not going to say their name on it because I I don't want to embarrass them, but but this made my day, honestly. And uh, it just says, hey, Ryan, I, I don't get to catch your ear much on a busy Sunday anymore, but I wanted to send you a quick note about how good God continues to be. We're enjoying your series, and something you said Sunday came to mind as we got some, uh, got some good news today. You talked about being faithful in the small things so God can use us or bless us in bigger ways. Of course, this resonated with me, and I felt the spirit nudge as I remembered a long season of deciding to walk in faithfulness for healing in our marriage. Well, what you may not know is my husband and I made the decision to tithe last year, to really tithe cheerfully tithe, not just give each week. At the time, we were $10,000 in debt and struggling in our marriage. We simultaneously tithed and, of course, committed to work with uh, your parents, my parents, uh, on our marriage. But in that time, we have, uh, we have faithfully tithed. We we're able to eliminate the debt as well as save that $10,000 back. We've done a ton of remodeling in our home, all paid in cash, and my business is taking off. My point In January, my husband felt called to add to our monthly tithe because my income had increased. Not going to lie, I was pretty resistant. God's teaching me. But we have been obedient, and today my husband's firm gave him a raise in the amount of our increased tithe. I want to jump up and down with joy. It's so good to see his promises fulfilled and so good to be used in, in part of his plan. I say that not because I'm really focusing in on the monetary uh, miraculous work of God in our lives but but this is a great example of something that just doesn 't make sense in god 's economy that being ten thousand dollars in debt and then and then making a decision to to tithe like well i don 't even understand that like that doesn 't even make any sense and and yet that 's god 's economy oftentimes his ways don't make sense to us. And in fact, I would, argue, I would make the argument that if it doesn't make a lot of sense, it's probably God orchestrating something in our lives. And God doesn't just provide in dramatic fashion. God provides in dramatic proportion. We continue in chapter 11. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them, uh, scattered them to up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. So the Israelites were parked in the wilderness of Paran. This is a region about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 50 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. You're keeping track geographically. The significance of that is uh, quail tend to live by the water, and they don't fly long distances. And if it weren't for a supernatural west wind, they would have never made it this far inland. So really, this is a meteorological miracle that's taking place. This is absolutely the miraculous. And it's not just a miraculous west wind, What happens is now the clouds burst with quail from the sky. Based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk was approximately 15 miles in any direction. So if you square the radius, multiply by pi. I took math for ministers, everybody. We're talking about an area that's almost 700 square miles. Put that into perspective, San Antonio is 465 square miles. So almost double the size of San Antonio, think about the masses. think about that camp, how massive this camp of people is. so imagine seeing now that many birds fly into camp that 's a lot of birds it's like a it 's like a bird blizzard <laughs> right it's like a, a Quailmegedon. It's it's your worst nightmare if you just washed your car. It's it's that I mean that many birds flying into this camp. And it was so massive that that it seemed like a solar eclipse. I said I wasn't gonna preach on it, but I just had to throw it in there. Like it just darkened the sky. For the rest of their lives, when the eyewitnesses who were there that day closed their eyes, all they could see and count were not sheep, were birds. And once the quail stopped falling, the Israelites started gathering them. Each Israelite gathered no less than ten homers. Ten homers multiplied by 600,000 men equals six million homers. Not the Simpson homer, but just the measurement. A homer equated to roughly 200 liters. Assuming that the quail were of an average size, which some of the hunters in first service told me were about that big. Anybody want to confirm or deny that? That big? So, if you multiply that by 6 million homers, then it rains somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 million quail. That's a lot of birds. That's a lot of quail. Moses could have never anticipated this answer to prayer. It was unpredictable. It was unprecedented. But Moses had the guts to circle the promise anyway. And when you circle the promise, you never know how God will provide. But It's always cloudy with a chance of quail. That one was cheesy. (laughs) He could have never anticipated this. And so our question this morning is, is there a promise that we need to circle today? Maybe we need to circle the promise for your marriage or for your children. Maybe there's something going on in your home and your family. Maybe you need to circle a circle of promise for the season in your life that you're going through. Maybe you need to circle a circle of promise for a fear that you're facing that you walked in with today. Whatever it is, whatever thing that you're dealing with or going through or dreaming about. Maybe that's the thing that we need to circle. But before the quail storm appeared, God asked Moses a question. And it's really more uh, than a question. It's the question. And our answer to the question will determine the size of our prayer circle. The question that God asked Moses was, is there any limit to my power? And the obvious answer to that question is, no, God's omnipotent, which means by definition, there's nothing that God cannot do. In fact, when, when I was in Bibles in, in like a kid's church, we used to sing a song, my God is so good, my God is so great. There's nothing my God cannot do. We, like We sing the song, we know it. Maybe you don't sing the song, but I did in my crazy church growing up. So we we know that inherently, that God is omnipotent. We know there's nothing that he cannot do. Yet many of us pray as if our problems are bigger than God. So I'll, I'll remind all of us of the amazing truth that really should fuel our faith today, that God is infinitely bigger than our biggest problem. He's infinitely bigger than our biggest dream that he's placed in our heart. In fact, while we're on the topic, God's grace is infinitely bigger than our biggest sin. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, God could never forgive me. His grace is infinitely bigger than anything you've ever done. A.W. Tozer believed that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. So if that's true, and I, I believe that it is, our biggest problem isn't an impending divorce or a failing business or a doctor's diagnosis. But I, And please hear me, I'm not making light of any relational or financial or health issue. I, I don't want to minimize those things because those are overwhelming challenges that face us. But in order to gain a godly perspective on our problems, we have to answer the question, are our problems bigger than God, or is God bigger than our problems? Because our biggest problem is our small view of God. And that's the cause of all lesser evil, and it's a high view of God that's the solution to all of our problems. So the question is, is there a limit to my power? Have we answered that question? Because there's really just two answers. There's yes and there's no. And until we get to a place of conviction that God's grace and power knows no limits, we will draw just small little prayer circles. But once we embrace the omnipotence of God, we'll begin to draw larger and larger circles around our god-given dreams and promises. So how big is our god? Is he big enough to heal our marriage? Is he big, big enough to move or work in our child who is who's struggling right now is Jeremy's next-door neighbor is going through I don't know what her son's going through but is got big enough to move and work in that situation? Is he bigger than a a positive MRI or a negative evaluation? Is he bigger than than a secret sin in our life? Is is God bigger than, than the dreams that he's put in our life? Moses was confused by the promise God had given him. How could God possibly provide meat for a month? It just didn't add up. But at that crucial juncture, when Moses had to decide whether or not to circle the promise, that's when God poses the question, is there any limit to my power? So I want to tell you just a little story about um, a challenge that I've been faced with. And I I shared this a couple weeks ago about the fact that we've been in this process of praying for our property to sell. And it's really a decision that was made about three years ago, uh, sitting in a council meeting, really praying and asking God how he was going to move and work. It wasn't a financial decision. This wasn't a like, oh, we're struggling, so now we need more money or something along those lines. It was really, listen, we're in debt and we don't want to be in debt. And so what are we going to do to get out of debt? And we believe that God didn't want us to be in debt. And so we said, well, here's a resource that we have. Let's, let's look at parceling off part of this and selling a portion of it. And, and so we did. We set out for that. And, and you can say, well, that doesn't really seem like that big of a miracle. I mean, people are selling commercial property all the time in our city. But the longer it, it dragged out and, and the more complicated it became, the more I realized that it was going to take a miracle to move this thing. And so for, for the first couple of years, honestly, I just I did pray, and I prayed that God would sell the piece of property and move so that we could do more things, more ministry with, with the resource that we have. And, and I was thinking, you know, it, the reality is, is I stopped. I, I stepped out of the circle, honestly. And so just as I was reading through this book and being challenged by it, I was reminded again to, to make that commitment and to step back into the circle. And I had to answer the question because the more complicated it seemed and the more people that were involved in this whole thing, the, the more impossible it, the promise seemed to be. But to the God who can provide 105 million quail, he can probably handle that. What's 10 acres to him? The size of our prayers really depend on the size of our God. And if you, if you know that God has no limits, then neither should our prayers. In fact, God exists now I'm going to get all nerdy on you. God exists outside of, of the, the four space time dimensions that he created. We should pray that way. It, it reminds me of a man who was kind of sizing up God, right? He, he, he asked God, God, how long is a million years to you? And God said, a million years is like a second. And the guy gets brave and he says, okay, how how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, well, a million dollars is like a penny. So the man kind of chuckles and says, can you spare a penny? And God says, sure, give me a, give me a second. <laughs> I didn't really deliver that as well as I was hoping. <laughs> but I think you were a little bit slow catching it too. <laughs> a million, a second is a million year. Anyways, it was lost. First service was way better on that joke than you guys. (laughs) With God, there's no big or small. There's no easy or difficult, no possible or impossible. And that's what's difficult for us to comprehend. Because all we've ever known are the four dimensions that we were born into, and God is not subject to the natural laws that he instituted. He has no beginning and no end. To, to the infinite, all finites are, are equal. Even our hardest prayers are easy for the omnipotent. We'll pull out oftentimes when we're praying big prayers, if you're, at least if you're like me. I, I find myself kind of falling into the trap of changing my vocabulary depending upon the largeness of my prayer. Right. If I, if I just use the right words, if I use bigger words, if I use more theological words, then God will hear and answer my prayer. Uh, as I've been, uh, during the 21 days of prayer, I've been walking up the up Wilderness Oak, and then I'll cut through the school there, and then I'll come down the little trail that we have along the recharge zone and literally circle our property. And I, as I found myself praying, because I'm out there alone, I start speaking louder, so that God can hear me, right? Because he can't hear me if I'm just quietly. I mean, right? Don't we fall into that trap where we're like, if, if I just speak at the right volume or I say the right words or use the right vocabulary, then, then God will hear my big, grandiose prayers. Really what it comes down to, it doesn't matter how loud we pray, how long we pray, the kind of words, that, the combination of words that we pray, it comes down to the answer of the question, is there any limit to my power? When God gives us a vision, when he, when he makes provision, we just need the courage to step out in faith. When God's calling us to get out of the boat, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We might forfeit the miracle if we don't. We have to believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills is what scripture says. He can send a west wind that brings in 105 million quail into the camp. But we do have to step out. We do need to do our part. And our part is taking a step of faith and pursuing the things that God's put in our hearts. So what step of faith do we need to take today? And as I said last week, I want us to be very careful with this theology. Because it can sound a little bit like a prosperity theology that says, if I just draw a circle around my portfolio that God, you know, like, no, that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what is the miracle that you need to see in your life. What does the Lord put in your heart that you need to begin walking out in your life? What decision do we need to make? Maybe we've been walking in fear. Maybe we don't want to to shift jobs because it doesn't make sense. Maybe we don't want to go to the doctor for fear of what the diagnosis might be. What decision do we need to make? What promise do we need to put a stake into? What do we need to draw a circle around and begin praying through? Not just praying for, but really praying through. The Lord's been putting some things into my heart. It's been a a new season uh, for me of just really pressing in and and dreaming big dreams and thinking about what our church can do for the city of San Antonio. And I, I mean that, like all two million of the city of San Antonio because there, there was a time and a season, I would even use the language like, you know, look at what we've done. It, it, that's amazing for a little small church like us. I, I even said that. And now I repent of that because it has nothing to do with the size of our church. It has everything to do with the size of our God. And, and, I, and so I, I've been dreaming and thinking about like, God, what do you want Lifehouse to do in the city of San Antonio? What could we do to make a difference? We talk about it all the time. We talk about making a difference. we plant churches? Could we plant a dream center? Could we do things that would make eternal significance in the world that we live in, in this city of San Antonio? And so I've been dreaming, I've been praying, and I've been asking God, I don't know why I'm juggling the things that I'm dreaming, but whatever, I'm juggling them, I guess. And, and here's, what I, here's what I believe. I believe wholeheartedly that the sale of the property, all of that is a key. It's not the only thing, but it's a key to unlocking these other dreams and, and things that God has for us. And so I'm asking, as I did a couple weeks ago, for all of us to begin drawing a circle around that and asking God to move and work in that. Not so that we can just do some things for the size of our church, but that we would be able to do eternal things that would make a huge impact on this city. There are churches all over our city that are maybe bigger than us or more influential than us or whatever the case, but none of that matters if we serve a God where there is no limit to his power. And as long as we press into that, all bets are off. As we close, I want us to to pray, and we're going to pray for a couple things. I noticed as I was uh, writing this morning, I was writing the the devotional for, I think it's day number nine, uh, which is in a couple days. it was all. It's the prayer point for that day is uh, to praying. It's interesting that Jeremy, as a missional focus, was talking about our our neighbors, those people that we know who are far from Jesus. That's really what that prayer points about. And and as I was writing it, I was writing about the story of Zacchaeus and how Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and we're supposed to model that for him. But I realized the last couple of weeks, I haven't ever, I haven't given the opportunity for people to to get close to Jesus, to surrender their life to Jesus. And I, I try to do that every Sunday. And so I'll, I want to give that as an opportunity this morning. But I don't want to pray for those who need a miracle in their life. We're going to not leave here today until um, till the miracle happens. No, I'm just kidding. And until we pray for the miracle to happen, all right? Uh, so we bow your heads with me as we, as we close our time out. Lord... Uh, it's challenging. I mean, first and foremost, this is, none of this is even doable or possible. We don't even have a relationship with you. And so, God, I want to pray for anybody that's here uh, that might not have a relationship with you. In fact, if you're here this morning and you walked in seeking God, you're looking for God, and you don't have a relationship with him, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I, I would like to pray with you. I'd like to include you in my prayer uh, if, if that's you. And so I'm going to invite you to just raise your hand right where you're seated and just say, Ryan, that's me. Will you include me in, in your prayer today? Okay, good. I see your hand. Yeah, I see your hand. Anybody else want to join these two? Okay, I see your hand. Anybody want to join these three? Yeah, good. I see your hand. Well, for these four who uh, are really responding to you, uh, I'm just—I'll just give you the language for for this prayer. But ultimately, it, it, this is personal. It's got to come from you. And it, it's there's nothing magical about my words. There's just this is the language that that we use when you when we're surrendering our life to Jesus, and it's. It's God, I surrender all to you, that I recognize I've been living my life my way, and today I make the commitment to stop living my way and start living your way. God, forgive me for my past, the the sin and the doing things my way and the the bondage that comes from living my life in such a way. And today I receive your freedom. And God, I pray that you would show me how to live as a free person. And today I would experience new, as Pastor Jeremy talked about, new life in you the greatest new we could ever experience, eternal life. In Jesus' name. For the rest of us, well, really for all of us, I, I want to pray for those of you that need a miracle. I don't know what you need a miracle for, but it s- seems as though that in your life, there's, it's insurmountable that in order for God to move seems impossible, really. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the God who there is no limit to his power will do the miraculous in your life. And this might be a little bit more out of your comfort zone because I'm going to ask that you would stand if, if that's you. You may need a miracle in your marriage may need a miracle in your health, in your physical body. You may need a miracle in the life of a family member. Whatever your miracle is, you serve a God who wants to do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever dream or imagine. And for every person standing today, God, I pray that you would do the miraculous. Your word says that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now lives in me. That's what your promise is. That same power, that's, you, you're the same God who did the miraculous can do a miracle in these lives. And for every, every person that's standing that has had the thought, and I'm including myself in that, the thought that my miracle is too big. God, not even God can deal with this. And we've had a small view of God. God, we, we ask for your forgiveness for limiting who you are. We ask for your forgiveness for for putting you in this small box that couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly do the miraculous, couldn't possibly provide meat for that many people for a month. And yet, that's the God we serve. So whatever wind that needs to blow in a miracle in these people's lives. God, I pray that you do it today. God, I pray that you heal marriages. God, that you would restore relationships with children. God, that you would heal the physical torment in people's lives. Heal cancer. Heal unknown sickness. Immune disorders. God, heal. God, I pray that you would heal the brokenhearted, all those who walked in hurting. God, you are a God that can do immeasurably more. God, we answer the question today. What limit is there to your power? And we would all say, nothing. There is no limit to your power. So, God, let that power move in people's lives today. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Ever since I, be- I used to not cry ever became a pastor. i cry, baby. I cry in movies. My wife doesn't even cry in movies. I cry in movies now. Listen, uh, there were four people who uh, responded and said, man, I, I want to, as Jeremy talked about, I uh, want to have a new life in Christ. And scripture says that when just one person surrenders their life to the Lord, that all of heaven rejoices. And so can we just say amen to that? <clears throat>